Archipelago, the podcast project of the Finalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, what is a mosque builder today? Is Michael Badu. Today my guest is Michael Badu, uh, we're in London in a little cafe, hence uh, the noise you can hear around, it will give a little bit of an ambience to our conversation. Um, and uh, Michael is an architect in London, He's, uh, he defines himself as a, as a mosque builder, which I enjoy because it makes me think of, uh, of uh, the middle age uh, cathedral builder with uh, uh, some things that goes a little bit beyond architecture as a as a program itself. Uh, I'm very to talk. I'm very happy to talk to him today. Uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning, Leopold. Uh, hopefully, this conversation will be uh, will be clear enough uh, so that uh, everybody who listens will lose nothing from it. Um, but uh, let's uh, let's introduce you a little bit more um, and um, uh, maybe maybe you can tell us uh, a little bit what your what you are interested in doing right now, and what you're doing in your in your practice? Yes. Uh, hello. Um, basically, as as you started off, I mean, I'm a mosque builder. That's something I've got into via my faith, which is Islam. I'm a Muslim convert um, of about 15 years now, um, and so it's something that uh, I fell into almost by accident. Um, but I have other interests. Uh, I'm constantly trying to define what an architect should really be doing. Um, should an architect be egotistical and force his ideas on everyone because he knows better? Or is it to do with listening and committee-based decision-making? Thank you. I, I see, and we're, we're, we will... Um we will use your your own experience as an architect and uh, as a mosque builder as maybe uh, an interesting example of what what it means to what it means to be an architect, what it means to be uh, a, a Muslim architect as you define yourself in a in a society like today. A um, lot of noise around, but yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, as I was saying a little bit earlier when we were preparing this uh, this, this podcast, uh, uh, I'm I'm very much interested in um, in how you are dealing with two um, let's say two fronts of uh, resistance that you need to that you need to face on a daily basis. One of w- one of which is um, is. Um, Characterized by the, the the latent or more or less explicit Islamophobia that we can see in our given society, in in our in our society, I'm sorry, and um, and uh, how how it puts you immediately within uh, a position in which you are being antagonized, and you mm-hmm. need to you need to um, maybe construct uh, an attitude. Uh, towards it, but there's a, there's a whole other other front as well that you need to uh, that you need to face, and uh, especially as an architect, is um, may, and we will talk about that a little bit later. It's also a certain form of conservatism um, 
from within within the within a part uh, and only part of uh, the Muslim communities that you work with, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and who are very often your clients, obviously uh, yeah, for, sure. uh, for yes. the mosque. And um, we will talk about our, an, uh, a spe- specific case uh, that is uh, the mosque in Ma- in Malmo that, Malmö, you, were, Sweden, that yes. you were commissioned to do. But let, let, f- first, maybe let's be a little bit more. Uh, Generic, let's say, and, and can you please tell me a little bit more about how you how you deal with within uh, within those two fronts? How are you being a tightrope walker, a phenomenalist, <laughs> uh, split between those two fronts, please? Yes, um, I think this is a useful place to start. Uh, the tightrope walker. It's it's funny. I, I I think that is that actually defines my life. Actually, <laughs> so I'm quite practiced at dealing with oppositional fronts and things that don't seem to go together or things that can't seem to coexist in one person or one community and because of that I guess I'm a little bit of an outsider in the Islamic community I belong to but I'm also a little bit of an outsider in the wider community as well I I feel as if I have opinions and ideas about things which most people do not share and I have to explain at some length sometimes So um, it's. It, I think you have to be tolerant, um, and this is also a line of uh, tightrope walking. For an architect, the the dilemma is how tolerant should you be? Because you are the expert, and you know the great architects of the past. They they didn't build their buildings through tolerance you know the, no, no great piece of architecture was built by a committee and so this is something that you're struggling with you want to listen to people but then you want that you know you have to build something create something which is going to outlast them and outlast you as well and you have to have concerns wider than the committee so this is this informs my my um, this did inform my work with Malma um. Yeah, and we'll talk. We'll talk about Malmo very soon because I think it's it's a very very interesting example, and uh, I'd like to take the time to really unfold what it meant and what it implied. But um, r- right now, I felt that we talked only about one one of your uh, one side of your tightrope, and, and maybe let's talk about the other one as well. Sure. Um, yeah. How how does um, how does your position? As not only a Muslim but a Muslim architect, um, uh, what what is your position in a society that uh, has uh, developed uh, again like a more or less explicit uh, racism and uh, Islam Islamophobic uh, uh, positions more and more uh, in those times, and how how yes. within your your your, pos- your specific position you're able to to resist against that. Yeah, well, um, as a Muslim architect, um, again, one of the things about somebody who deals with different fronts and isn't trapped in a, in one particular group uh, is that you learn to defi- you learn to define yourself by what you think you are, rather than what other people think you are. So, obviously, I adopted Islam as my faith. I think that this is a good way to live. I think that this has something to offer to the world. And so I don't really approve, coming from the inside, of any really kind of 
victim mentality. Um, being a Muslim, it's different. I mean, I'm also an African. I'm also a black man as well. And I think that perhaps some vestige of a victim mentality, as a you know, in the African American or the African British community, is more justified than in the Muslim community because the Muslims didn't come to you know as a Muslim we are taught to believe and I firmly believe that the Muslims didn't come into being to to fight for their own rights we came to fight for the rights of humanity this is something which is to do with service to humanity this is a calling uh, whereas you know the race that you're born into is just an accident so I, I would urge Muslims and I always do urge Muslims that first of all think you know kind of paraphrasing um, John F. Kennedy, don't think about what your country can do for you. Think about what you can do for your country. I really believe that is where you should start as a Muslim. But from the other side, I do also believe that there is a kind of historically motivated or historically rooted distrust of Islam in the West, which, although it draws upon some of the heinous crimes that have been done in the name of Islam, to, to, uh, for justification it goes a little bit beyond what can be considered reasonable um, but I, I tend to think that as a Muslim the solutions start with us uh, it may sound a little bit harsh against Muslims but uh, I, I do think that once we see Islam in so-called Muslim countries once we see Muslims you know, practicing what we all know what we should be doing in in non-Muslim countries as a immigrant communities. Then we should look, then look and see what the prejudiced people are doing, and then that will be highlighted even more. But um, as Muslims, we must, I think, take ownership of the issues. Uh, okay, um, um, but. On the other, on the other hand, I think it's. It, it, I mean, you'll tell me what you think about that, but I, I, I feel that it's a little bit different to be in a position of a minority in, for example, UK is being uh, living in, living in uh, in the UK. In comparison to, to uh, for example, the five the five uh, Islamic republic of the world, in which uh, being a Muslim is actually uh, being fully part of, uh, of the of the norm and uh, at the top of the relationship of powers. Uh, so there's, there's probably a distinction to be made between those two situations, don't you think? So we can't compare the two. Do you think? Um, yeah, I I think that where the in in Muslim republics. Um, I mean, I have a Pakistani friend in my office who's... I mean, Pakistan is the archetypal, probably, Muslim republic. It was founded for that reason. Um, so perhaps it's a good place to start to discuss things. If you go to Pakistan, I mean, it's a common talk, common um, thing to say among Pakistanis that they have more rights, perhaps, here in a non-Muslim country than they do in Pakistan. So, for example, it's quite common in Pakistan for bomb blasts to happen outside mosques between different sectarian groups. Um, but yet here, you know, specifically Shia and Sunni in Pakistan, but here Shia and Sunni are free. They know that if they go to the mosque here in the UK, um, then that's not going to happen. I'm wary of 
giving fuel <laughs> to people, you know, to, to neoconservatives. But this is, but we have to be honest about these things as well. So that's a place, that's a country where, you know, ostensibly, Muslims can do what they want. And what has been done with the freedom that they've been given, you can see for yourself. So that's something which worries me uh, as a Muslim. Um, I think that actually in, when, we, when Muslims come to these countries, to, the, to European countries, to non-Muslim countries, it's actually an opportunity for us to start again, um, to actually perhaps right those wrongs and you know, separate a little bit the ideology from a kind of tribalism which I think is damaging. I and mean, I think which underpins sometimes the Muslim communities. I think tribalism is not what Islam is about. So, as coming from somebody who, who is a convert, you know, who is a what? Sorry, a, con a convert to Islam. It's about ideology. It's about the belief system. It's about an attitude to live to life. It isn't about my group or your group. So that's and that kind of goes back to the funambulists, I guess. Um, you know, uh, root at the root of this, the fundamentalist kind of agenda, because that's how I look at things. I don't look at myself as a as a member of a group who I have to defend all the time, mm -hmm. whether they're right or wrong. Yeah, yeah and, ac and actually, uh, uh, that's that's where I want to say that we we're talking about those issues because that's pretty much the topic of this conversation. But mm. uh, obviously, all all those groups are not what. Uh, are obviously not the only things that characterize you. So it's, sure. it, it's always it's always a, a danger to, uh, especially coming from coming from uh, 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 pe people at their at their as a comfortable uh, position in the mechanism of power to characterize minorities by yes. one or two one or two specific uh, characteristics. But okay, so that being said, let's let's explore this uh, Malmo case that uh, sure. you've been telling me about uh, a few years ago, and that that I was extremely interested in because it creates it creates what I would call the, uh, an architect dilemma, and this dilemma that you will explain to us is um, is extremely strong here. But basically, I think what I was interested in talking uh, with you today is how those dilemmas are absolutely everywhere in a practice of an architect or pretty much any other uh, any other professions that uh, design so much the, the, um, the commission and the apparatuses of powers that our, the society has to live with so mm. I think I think I think this case is illustrative for its Where it's really a clear line. We're still talking about lines. Sure. Uh, but basically, on a daily basis, we are confronted to this kind of question. So I, mm. I think it's, it's very interesting for that. So please tell us tell us the story about Malmo. Sure. Um, basically, uh, I was commissioned um, as a member of an Islamic community by the hierarchy of that community to um, redesign a design which actually had already been submitted. I was actually drafted in to make the design work. But what that actually entailed was, was complete redesign. And the mosque was for a small community in Sweden, uh, in Malmö. 
um, probably about uh, between 250 to 500 members and it had to incorporate the prayer, the place, the areas of prayer as well as the, the living accommodation for the imam and places to, you know, to have, um, you know, to eat food, etc. It had to, you know, a, a complete communal function all had to be contained within the most, you know, cost-effective envelope as possible. That said, um, Sweden is a country which, which is a special case because, you know, had I been doing the same building here in, in the UK, in London, where we have lots of mosques, in, in Malmo, uh, there are very few. I think there is only one mosque, purpose-built mosque, uh, in Malmo. And there is, you know, since I was involved, there, there was a kind of um, imperative to, to actually try to understand what is a mosque in Sweden? What should that be? What is that? Uh, and it's the same question as, as a Muslim in Sweden. Well, what should that be? Or a Muslim in London, what should that be? It's not the same as a Muslim in uh, Saudi Arabia or Pakistan. And as a mosque is not the same either. And it's, you know, I was coming from the perspective, I mean, I actually brought quite a lot of books. I mean, I, obviously everyone knows a certain amount about the history of Muslim architecture. But what I found is that there is no Muslim architecture as such. I, Islam isn't a, very, isn't a very old religion. Um, architecture is something to do with the human culture, and it comes usually at the, you know, towards the end or towards the very mature phase of the development of any human culture. So what you find is that Islam borrowed or piggybacked the cultures of the, of the, um, the architecture of the cultures that it, it absorbed in a very, you know, not, not in, a very, in a very authentic way. It understood them and re-employed them and changed them and improved upon them in some respects. So... That kind of gave me a lot of hope that I can do anything I want, really. But I was also given the brief that we must have a minaret and we must have a dome. And I thought, okay, you know. I mean, I'm also interested in um, Renaissance architecture. And the churches, you know, the Renaissance architects were, were, were preoccupied, actually, with centrally planned churches. And, 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 you know, in a centrally planned space, a dome is the most natural thing. And, you know, with Campanile, which is the same thing as as a minaret so to me there was no conflict and I suppose as a as a funambulist you're always trying to find the ways you have an intrinsic belief an optimistic belief that actually these lines actually don't exist I suppose really and then you're working on that basis all the time um, but other people are telling you who are in the different groups that actually these lines are there and they are very important and you have to respect them but then you are saying you have your belief and you have to prove it, actually, through your design work, through your theory work, your writing, whatever it is you do. You end up spending a lot of time trying to prove that these lines don't exist. And it's the same thing between my studies of the Renaissance and, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I would say I'm a modern architect. I mean, I don't believe in, 
building things, you know, rebuilding the orders. But I do believe in understanding these things. And you know, I have friends that say, why are you spending so much time studying, you know, uh, Bramante and Michelangelo? And to me, they're just architects, you know, who are very good. <laughs> the fact that they lived a long time ago, it means that actually we can assess their buildings accurately because time has passed. And if you are honest about being a good architect, then you want to know what works. And actually what was built a long time ago, we know whether it works or whether it didn't. That, was, that, that which was built 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we don't know yet. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. Now I faced resistance on the Malmo projects um, to um, the design work which I made. From the board, right? From the board, yeah. Which is, a, I should say, the community is a, very, is a Pakistani majority community. Uh, and it's quite interesting that Muslim groups have their own preferences for, for lots of things. But in mosque design, the preference, one of the key differences was that um, the key areas of dispute, if you like, was that I created a very large prayer area uh, for the men with a gallery for the ladies overlooking the same prayer area, which is an accepted typology, it's an accepted uh, method methodology and approach to mosque design, especially favoured by the Turks. If you go to the, to the ex-territories of the Ottoman Empire, they all build mosques like that. But I was told that that's not acceptable, that that mosque should be, that the ladies' prayer area should be on a completely different floor, in like a basement type uh, area, or the men should be in the basement and the women should be upstairs. Now the problem with that is that you do not, they do not, the, both the groups, the men and the women, do not share the, 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 the architectural space that you're trying to create. And that's the advantage of the gallery. Now, the other important thing about this dispute was that it wasn't the head of the community. The head of the community, the worldwide head, approved my design. It was the locals that uh, dug their heels in and uh, resisted. Um, so, let me just sum it up. So yeah, sure. They, they, were, they were specifically asking for separation of gender within their... Uh, within the mosque and therefore within the, the office as well because there would be an office for the woman and an office for the, for the men. Yes, and absolutely. what you were proposing is to have uh, both gender separately yet in the same space and therefore following the same office. Absolutely, yes. Um, you know, which is, as I said, it's not new in Islam. I wasn't proposing that, all, that there should be a mixed congregation or anything like that. Um, But, you know, there was resistance because in, culturally in Pakistan, this is what they're used to. They're used to women being on completely separate floors or not attending the mosque at all. And they, resi they resisted on cultural basis, not on doctrinal basis. So, in the end, it wasn't really a question of, um, you know, Islam's ability to, to uh, operate... In, in, a, in a context, in a non-familiar context, in a Western context, because the tools were there. You know, everything was on my side, history, even the head of the community was on my side. But this is the conservatism of, of some of the Muslim immigrants. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you, yeah. you did not finish the story, what happened? Oh, well, what, what happened was I did a preliminary design and I refused to change it. But, and I had the, the head of the community backing me and I left it with the, um, the local committee. To this day, I don't know what's, what's happened to the design. Um, they had to raise funds, so it was always going to take some time before 
they, uh, they built it, but they were thinking of engaging a local architect, which I was in favour of actually. I wanted to work with a local architect from the beginning, but again, his fees were quite high. And I thought that would be good as well because, you know, a Swedish architect to work on a mosque with a Muslim architect. To me, this is the model which should be followed in every country. A Muslim architect should take somebody local, especially with a worldwide community, and there should be a discussion. They should be brought in to, to um, you, know, in, you know, give their view about what a mosque should be in their country. This is actually what happened in, in Ireland. The local engineer, actually, who was a local consultant, so had, you build you build a mosque in uh, in Ireland in Galway. Right? Yes, which is which is complete now. Um, it's a much much smaller mosque than the Malmo project, but you know the local um, consultant who was an engineer, uh, he had his ideas about what a mosque should be. I mean, the very first thing, which was important to him, I mean, this is where we actually saw eye to eye was that it should be something which is going to be here for hundreds of years. It's not going to be here just for a few decades. We're building something more important than an office building, more important than uh, you know a house, which was amazing for me that he would take that view with, a, you know, with an immigrant community. He saw it the same as a cathedral, the same as something like that. And so the details we designed are on that basis. And uh, you know, that was a wonderful... Not only will the building hopefully be a lot better for it, for that reason, but the relationships, the, the, um, the feeling that was carried away by me and by that local engineer, the Irishman, that that will be passed on to his children, that will be passed on to the people they meet, that will live as well, in, in parallel with the, with the built structure. And that, and that also acts on the relationship between the the, <clears throat> the non-Muslim community and the Muslim community in this specific city. Yes, absolutely, in a very real sense, not in a kind of pseudo-political sense mm -hmm. imposed from outside. This is something which comes from inside the actors in this, you know, in this project, and I think that's important. That is authentic, you know. So. Um, Going back, going back to Malmö. So what what happened is basically you you refused to change your design. You got relieved. Yes. You got relieved from the commission. I got. Um, I, I refused to change the design, and I didn't. It wasn't so much that I was relieved, but having completed the preliminary design, I left it with them. I mean, they yeah. didn't sack me. I, they didn't have the authority to sack me anyway. But um, you know, I think that the head of the community was mindful that obviously the local people have to use this building. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to use it, uh, but I was actually thinking that um, one day they, they will they will leave this planet, <laughs> and the, the city the city of Malmo will house this building. That was more my thinking. Um, but uh, yes, I, I, I ceased to work on the project, and that's that's where that's where I left it. You know. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, but what I was what I was interested in is, is more, more, even more the the no that you said the the refusal, which I think is is extremely important because um, our our work is an articulation of the yes we say and the no we say, and um, and when do you say no is a, is actually a, an interesting question, and at, mm. at, a, at a whole. 
at a whole variety of levels. Um, uh, I'm, I can think of many examples, but um, uh, yes, the, the most, the most, <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> The most obvious one for me is consistency. It's very simple question that uh, seems to be having a simple answer, but is is actually is actually um, embodying a whole range of questions that uh, architects should be asking themselves without necessarily having a clear answer to it. Mm. And this question can be formalized as such: as a, if you were commissioned to do a prison, would you? Would you design it? Yes or not? And and obviously a prison is is let's say a sort of extreme extreme example uh, if we if we if we may say that. But so a lot of people would actually a lot of people to this question answer no. Yeah. But then the follow up question is okay, you will not design a prison. I very much understand that that might even be my own answer. Yeah. However, would you? Why would you then accept to design a bank, yeah. a, a big corporation office, yeah. a retail store, a school in the way we understand school right now, a factory in the way we understand factories right now? There's a, there's a tremendous amount of programs that are quite not as extreme as a prison, but that puts you immediately in a position of accomplice to something that's being made. Yes. And it asks the question if if you do want to uh, challenge the status quo of, of those uh, of those programs it asks the question whether you act more on them by plainly refusing them or by trying to change them from the inside I personally have no answer for this question but I think <laughs> yeah. it's a very interesting question to always have in mind uh, so your your no to me relates to this kind of uh, questions that an architect always have to wonder about and yeah. occasionally and actually pretty more often than what we would think have to give an answer have to take the risk of a yes or a no uh, to this question so I think it's, mm. it's extremely interesting for that yeah it's quite interesting that you um, you've brought this other dimension and when you mentioned the prison I was actually thinking oh there there's so many worse things you know the palace of a, for a dictator or, uh, absolutely yeah and when, when a part of my study of renaissance architecture is this question you know sorry this question of much of the great architecture of history has been commissioned by despots, you know, by by dictators, by the worst regimes. You know, uh, I mean, the Ottomans were guilty of lots of bad things, and yet they have produced this wonderful architecture. And in architecture, we've had this debate in a long time, well, since Plato, really, that you know, beauty equals goodness, but the architect knows that it's not the case. You know, um, so perhaps the cowardly position to take is that we are neutral you know we are we are built we are building with inert materials our job is to be, is to make something culturally make something beautiful make something culturally valid in a sense you know when i talk about you know culturally valid i mean in the aldo rossian sense where you know aldo rossi was a you know, obviously is a a great architect and, and a scholar who investigated the ways in which architectural form has validity or not to, and, and what that validity is what it constitutes is not in the gift of the architect it's to do with the people that live in that area that use that building I mean, I'll give you an example the, the building I work in is a 500 year old building in East London there aren't many buildings of that age in that area but because of it a new kind of middle class 
culture is growing up around it with people moving from areas where real estate is more expensive and the real estate of that area is going up simply because that building is there I think partly or a big part of it is. because people people have give these things value and I think that in, in itself is the question for architects because we've built a lot since 500 years which has no value to people you know they're tearing it down you know flats modern buildings to, to me this is the first ethical question of an architect because if you're not building something which people value you're wasting money resources time I mean if you look at Park Hill flats where one of those buildings built in the late 50s early 60s has been redeveloped a lot more money has been spent on it crime happened in those buildings you know there was drug selling there was all kinds of it became a kind of social a negative social sink in a way so it's almost the first question and it's and it's something we struggle with still then beyond that are the issues you, you, you talked about. Who do you build for? Um, I'm sure that um, you know if we if we really thought about it, there is nothing that an architect could do. There's no project an architect, an architect could do which could be wholly beneficial. You know, even if you, you know, even Apple, for example, the headquarters that, that Norman Foster is building for them, they're now coming under criticism because. They are exploiting workers in China, and Apple is this symbol of democracy and freedom and progress. What is it? <laughs> it's seen as such. <laughs> by, by, I think less and less so, perhaps. But it was, you know, at least ten years ago, definitely it was. Um, uh, but it's something that, that there's the danger of. Actually, if you look into it too deeply, perhaps this is a cowardly answer, but would you end up staying at home doing nothing and drawing the curtains, you know? Um, I don't believe that. I believe there are ways you can you can behave ethically as a practitioner of any discipline. From the inside. From the inside. That that's also a danger because how often does it happen? How often does does change really happen from the inside? People people say that, but often the people that go inside to try and change things themselves become corrupted. These are the realities. Um, I think what it comes down to for me is, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, it's that simple, you know. Um, if you're honest with yourself, can you live with yourself? I think that's the question. Can you hold your look? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think I think this this problem you just developed is, uh, is at the very very core of this question, and that's why this question does not have a clear answer, and maybe have only answers that are situational let's say yes. for, for each case there is a I think so. for, for each case there's no theoretical answer but only only the risk of an answer or the other um, I heard you saying something that um, uh, take my mind a little bit you say architects are neutral would, would you mind if I substitute neutral to uh, by humble we have to be more humble maybe not more neutral No, I wouldn't say that. What I would okay, say, sorry. yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll take an example. I mean, at the back of my mind, there's been a book written by your namesake. She's also from New York, Phyllis Lambert, um, who's the. Uh, we, we were talking about Leopold Sedar Sangor earlier, yeah. but I have another homonym. Now your name has been completed. Yeah, Phyllis Lambert. <laughs> She's just written a She's book. She's in Montreal, actually. She's in Montreal. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's that's correct. Yeah. Um, She's just written a book about the building of this, you know, 
the most expensive, probably the most expensive office building ever, and one of the most beautiful buildings, modern buildings ever, by all accounts. Uh, it's a Seagram building. The Seagram building. And one thing which, you know, by Mies van der Rohe. And Mies van der Rohe was, you know, he has a saying which, we are not concerned with problems of form, only problems of building. And you could probably paraphrase the same thing, we are not concerned with problems of ethics, problems of politics, problems, etc., only problems of building. And if there is an ethical dimension, it's to do with the ethics of building. So there's this idea about the blind builder who, who doesn't know whether he's building a prison or, or a, a palace for a dictator or some other kind of, you know, okay, let me say this, a, a, a castle in Elmina for, for slaves, you know, something that, something that heinous. He just wants to build it well. Now, whether that's valid or not, I don't know. But I think that Mies van der Rohe definitely, definitely had that um, view. I mean, he's probably the best example of somebody who had a highly attuned ethical stance towards building, towards the placing of a building material on top of another building material. He was highly anal about it and highly, you know, sensitive to that. But he was building, you know, a building for a whiskey company uh, just after Prohibition, a couple of decades after Prohibition. They were actually facing some lawsuit as well, that company, to do with, uh, to do with the, the, the ethical, ethical nature or otherwise of the businesses they were engaged in. He did not get involved in that. He only wanted to build the best building he could and what do we see decades later is that that company is not really the chief actor in the context I mean that company is not is not really involved with that building now it carries the name but people don't think of it as the build, the, the palace of a corrupt you know whiskey company they think of it as a piece of architecture and actually what's happened is that the Seagram name has people think of the Seagram, the Seagram company in terms of Mies van der Rohe rather than think of uh, Mies van der Rohe in terms of the Seagram company. So you can argue what has happened there. I don't really know. <laughs> um, uh, I, I see, but I'm, I'm, I really apologize if I misunderstood what you're saying, but don't, don't you think that um, the materials you are evoking, like this piece of material above another piece of material, mm. don't you think those materials? And allow me, allow me to say it in almost a, a, a relatively, uh, 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 with a relatively poetic language. It's like, don't you think those materials are are charged with the programs that they're that they're hosting, and, and therefore, and in, in the most extreme examples that you were evoking, so they're. The, the the house I mean the house the, 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 the barracks the barracks of the the barracks of the slave for example mm -hmm. don't you think don't you think that those walls are 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 uh, hiding within themselves the 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 horrors that they that they host yeah I mean you can't deny that you know you can't deny you know but perhaps I mean to take it further. Uh, I mean, it's going to sound terrible, but how good a piece of architecture is Elmina Castle, really? You know, it, it was there to serve an expedient, to, to serve a, a very bloody and brutal expedient. Architecture wasn't really on the agenda, but for the Seagram building, 
architecture was on the agenda from the beginning. Um, if you go back to the, the palaces of the Renaissance despots, I mean, they had this thing within them, some of these Renaissance princes who commissioned these architects of, of combining brutality with, um, with a, you know, a kind of deep intellectual refinement. So that they knew, so that they wanted the best scholars around them. They wanted them to live in the nicest buildings, and they, and, you know, they, they, they quoted from Cicero and Seneca, and you know. And also, I heard the other day on TV the Nazis, after they uh, killed Jews in the con- concentration camps, they went home and listened to Wagner. You know? This is the problem for architects, and this is why I kind of go back to well, what do we do really? I mean. By, by saying no to the building of a palace. I, I, think the, I think the barracks of the slaves is different because you are there specifically building something. Uh, and I think that was going to be the distinction that I was yeah. going to make. It, there's, there's a no to the program and there's a no to a client. And if I understood correctly, you're saying that the client doesn't really matter, whereas the program might be highly problematic, like we all know it is. Like, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at. But then, if you, then for example, what happened is, is that the, the slave traders. Let's take it further. When they went back to Europe, the Georgian houses, the, the beautiful Georgian houses, uh, their their properties. They had the money to commission those properties, and they and with the blood money of of slaves. So, then what do we say? Do we say that the architects who designed those buildings for those people? have acted in unethically even then I would say no mm-hmm. because they're not responsible for where those people got their money from but, but there's a tremendous uh, uh, difference I believe and uh, they're both extremely problematic but there's, there's a big difference between building a house for a slave, ma- for a slave master mm. or building a, uh, a barrack for slaves oh absolutely time. absolutely I mean I'm such a big difference that I'm inclined to almost dismiss the the barracks because you just wouldn't do it the answer is no right I but mean, because the barracks uses architecture for the purpose that it's supposed to serve whereas the, the house the house is only um, um, the, the problem is let's say outside of architecture I don't mm. like saying that because I think I think everything is pretty much inside but uh, I, I suppose you yeah, get my point I see I mean I would almost reverse it I would say that the barracks is outside architecture I mean then we come to what we do as architecture. architects. It's to do with our, you know, architecture is, it's, is it, and let me ask the question, is it, is it like poetry and other forms of art which help us to understand who we are as human beings? Um, and, and it's a conscious effort to understand who we are as human beings. So there's a difference also between you know, uh, a mosque or any other kind of um, major building, which is definitely architecture and uh, electricity substation. In that, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe we should have started by that, g- giving giving to each other our definition of architecture, because Perhaps, yeah. I think I think you, I think uh, your definition of architecture is involves the activity of what architects do. Mm-hmm. Whereas mine is a little bit more holistic, and it, it yeah. concerns very much uh, the, integri- the, 
the entireness of the built environment. So, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so to me, the barrack is the barrack is part of it. But obviously, uh, yeah. uh, your your definition is a, is another one that that yeah. works well. Too. I, I think actually it it's a it's a good thing to talk about. I mean, just briefly because yeah. you know if you look in the UK at least, architects are responsible for less and less. They have less and less power, less and less influence. I mean, the story of you know, uh, Mies van der Rohe, the heroic architect who just spent time in his office on site thinking and smoking a cigar and inspecting, it doesn't happen anymore. No one can get away with that because we have lost our prestige. And this goes, you know, bring, coming full circle, we lost our prestige because we built things in recent decades which did not have value to people. Yeah, people saw before that 500-year-old building that I work in has value to people. So the question comes... What are you good for? As an incidental thing, what, what are you contributing? So now what you see in the UK is that other actors, building companies, contractors, project managers have taken over the role of architects largely, not only in this country, but also in Europe um, as a whole, uh, maybe even wider. Um, so that architects are now sub-consultants and you're brought in to kind of decorate things almost. So, but we still, but given that, we still hold on to the grand division of what architecture is, even though the other actors involved in the entire built environment, the, the, the production of the built environment, the renewal of the built environment, don't really understand that or don't really have value, uh, don't really value it. Because the only way they can value it is by the products of our work, which haven't, haven't achieved that, that aim. So in a way, I, I'm mentioning this because it's quite similar to the, the kind of sharper ethical dilemma that you highlighted, because we may be building, involved in building things for despots. We may even be involved in building prisons. I've worked for practices before that are involved in building prisons. Um, but when I was working there, you know, in my heart of hearts, I was thinking that this isn't really my work, you know? And not because I have a problem with prisons as such. I'm not sure whether I do as such, as prisons. If I was building maybe, um, well, no one would do that. No one would build slave barracks today. But, it's, a, it's a difficult but, question. But prisons, is so, you, can, you can make the argument that they're necessary. So it was more on, and this goes back to Melma as well, the reason I didn't really see that as my work was to do with more that the architect's work is to create beautiful space, to create... You know, poetic spaces to be involved in poetry with materials, with solid materials, and prisons has nothing to do with that. And similarly, the Malmo question was to do with a, a, the quality of the architectural space that, that they were trying to stop. So, in a way, I'm kind of making myself look very, uh, uh, what's the word, neutral in a bad way. I'm, I'm saying I don't really care about the, the wider ethics. All I care about as an architect is the quality, the quality of the architecture, in terms of space and materials. I'm not saying that's as a human being I have wider concerns, but as an architect, when that is threatened, the quality of architectural space, um, then it's quite shallow. I, I feel quite shallow saying it, but then we then we are more likely to say no, you know, as architects, I think. But I believe that the quality of the architecture you're referring to as is deeply connected to the to the human problems that you you're also evoking, right? Because in the case of Malmo, at least, it's very clear. 
in terms of the separation of the sexes? Yeah. Yes. Um, but also, in my proposal, the, the sexes were still separated, only in a different mm -hmm. cultural... But the quality of your architecture was, was doing that. Was it, it was as an architect that you were mm. enabling something to happen, which was, which was the, the, the double congregation uh, being together, uh, mm. separated but together. Yeah. Um, so that is the quality you're talking about, I believe. It, it was, but... That has a, a spatial embodiment. Yes, yes, yes. It, but yeah, I mean, because that was because that was better for the architecture. They would have made a better building. That's why I was concerned with it, not for any other reason. Because in in their solution, their preferred solution, and in my preferred solution, the sexes are still separated. You know, there was no. This wasn't to do with my stance. Wasn't to do with. I, I guess I want. I didn't like the idea of women being separated from the main space. Uh, you know, I, I don't like that idea of anybody being separated from the same space. But that's, I think that is more my human side. Architecturally, with my architect's head on, I thought this is a bad building the way they want it. It's a good building the way I want it. And the, um, I think there are reasons, there are doctrinal reasons why the sexes are separated in places of worship. There are movements that I'm aware of. Uh, that call for the integration of the sexes in in uh, mosques and to be honest with you I don't really have an idea have a firm view one way or the other I mean I have a view which is a traditional one the traditional Islamic view but I, might, I have a kind of as a funambulist I guess I, I think it's important that these voices should be heard they should be included And you know, because I want to hear what they have to say. So, but I wasn't coming from that, from that viewpoint as an architect. I was coming from, I was coming from a, from a conservative viewpoint, from a religiously conservative viewpoint. But not, but what I was saying that to the Pakistani community was, look how the Turks do it. It makes better building. The women are still included. You, you, um, you are. Uh, satisfy your doctrinal requirements for them to be separated as well but their view that their issue and this is my problem with Muslims in general is that their issue was purely cultural Islam is a religion which was supposed to end tribalism that is really what it was supposed to do if you look at the history of Islam this is what it was about but the Muslims one thing I've noticed empirically 15 years of being a Muslim is that we are amongst the most tribal people in the world We hold on to our, and there's no, nothing wrong with it, hold on to our cultural baggage with, very, with a lot of ferocity. And I think that's what, what the Imama situation was about. But that contradicts Islam, actually, that view. Well, Michael, we reached uh, the end of, uh, of this podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time with me this morning. Thank you for... In London. Thank and, you for uh, talking to me. <laughs> and good luck with all your future projects and uh, all those mosques that you will build uh, uh, in, the, in the future. Thank you. Thank you.